Cade Nefeltia, welcome to Crown House Short Stories and Poetry for September 22nd, 2023. Hello, my name's Terrence O'Donnell. I'm here with some more good stories and poetry for everyone this week. This once-a-week podcast is being hosted on RSS.com. It is also available in Spotify, Amazon Music, Samsung Podcast, Podcast Index, Listen Notes, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Pandora, TuneIn, Google Podcasts, and Deezer. The show is free to subscribe to for now on these mobile apps with a donations tab on rss.com webpage where this show is hosted to support the show. Much like passing a hat at the end of my visit to your digital village. A little about me. I'm a senior citizen of Irish descent and a self-professed Sean Kay, a Gaelic storyteller. I want listeners to feel like we're sitting underneath the village oak tree, the Crombieha, which translates to the tree of life. While here together, I will read to you fictional stories and poetry from writers I found on Medium.com, including some of my own stories on occasion. Some are scary, some are very thoughtful, and some very soul-searching. Others are just plain fun. In order to read the accompanying newsletters in Medium.com or Substack.com, you'll need to either sign up for a subscription in Medium, or I offer the newsletter free for the first month in Substack, then they get paywalled after. If you want to read any of the newsletters and listen to the podcast without any obligations, you can also find everything in the blog section of my website at www.crownbeha.com. You can find all the older shows until Samhain, which is in November 1st, for those who don't know. I will start a new season after that. My goal is to entertain you with stories and poetry from writers around the world. I try to pick out stories and poems that will hopefully stay with you for a wee bit, after we parted for the day and leave you wanting more. So now my first story. I've got seven stories for you this week. Poetry and stories. And my first story is called The Apocalypse, A Travel Guide. It's And he's got a note here that says, Currently fiction, but it might not be someday in the near future. And this is from Michael Campy. I had expected a lot worse when we finally made it to the end run. I found that staying away from humans, a skill I had developed long before things went into overdrive, was a valuable skill indeed. I knew a lot of people who desperately needed to have people in their lives, and they were finding out that the people now would just as soon eat you as talk to you. They were having a hard time. They were kind of like unwanted dogs who kept coming back for scraps and getting kicked in the face. One thing I hoped for them is that they would figure this out but I wasn't going to stick around to see if they learned their lesson. I had places to go, and then other places to go, and absolutely no people to see. The upside of this whole end-of-the-world thing, if you could stay ahead of the disasters or your fellow humans, is that hotels are a lot cheaper. If you could find one that hadn't been taken over by a warlord or something, you could do pretty good. You could go full on four star, as long as your expectations of what constituted four star were lowered to address the current conditions. You couldn't reasonably expect there to be a breakfast or Wi-Fi or a functioning toilet or shower or running water or in-house gym or sheets or a bed. If you're okay with that, there are still a lot of nice places to stay. Some of the better ones were originally intended to be hunting lodges and they were out of the way enough that humans hadn't got to them yet. Years ago, there was a book called Blue Highways and it's about a guy who spent three months driving around the U.S. on old small highways, and avoiding the interstates and large towns. That book is kind of my roadmap for me as I now spend my time on old highways 
and avoiding interactions with humans entirely. The key to living out your life in this new dystopia is just to stay away from bipedal carbon-based life forms. For the immediate future, there is still a fair amount of food available, but don't expect that to last too much longer. If you find yourself in some abandoned, out-of-the-way place that has a small hotel and a cafe, you're golden for at least as long as the resources hold out. What this type of life boils down to is a modern-day nomadic hunter-gatherer. There's no upside that I can see to staying anywhere for too long because you run the risk of attracting attention, and that is the last thing you want to do. It's not for everyone. As hard as it is for me to put myself in their shoes, unless their shoes are a size 14 and better conditioned than mine, there are still people who cling to the safety in the numbers idea. That might have been true 10 years ago, but nowadays you put yourself at risk if you spend too much time with them. When you involve yourself with more than two or three people at any given time, you're asking for trouble. Prior to the collapse, about one in four adults had a diagnosable mental illness, and even though no one is keeping track anymore, I would venture to say that the number is a lot higher now. One of the ways to plan your out is to spend a little time figuring out where people were comfortable going before everything fell apart and then stay away from those places. It's going to be like Dawn of the Dead where the people go to the shopping mall because even though they are dead, that is where they were most comfortable. That right there is scary but true. I read a book on homesteading once that said to do some research before you buy a piece of property. What the author suggested was once you found some place you liked, to sit down and see if you could come out with any reason that someone else might want to live there at any time in the next 10 years. If you could come up with even one, then you should avoid that property. Time to start making your plans now. And if you see me on the road, go ahead and shoot, because you know I will. And that's a very good dystopian future story. I, I picked it out because it goes along with a lot of books that I've read in, in the last couple of decades or so um, and it goes right along with those. The future could be a very scary place. Next I have a poem for you. It's entitled Deja Vu of All Love Stories with the Taste of the Newest Wine from Mariana Bosarova in Bulgaria. Taste me. I am the zest of the ocean and the newest wine. The air in the darkness is a portion of the dearest dream of mine. This night is a dark-haired lady, smelling of honey and sin. All doubts now are fading. The new moon is golden and thin. Do not ask me questions. Listen to the song of the stars. Do you have some sweet suggestions? Some magic to erase the scars? Your fingertips dance with passion over my eyelids and skin. Your kiss is a real confession, and my reveries are within. I breathe you, and I melt in. I am. You're my newest invention. You make me feel like the Trojan Helen. Our story isn't the misrecreation. We are deja vu of all love stories. What if this night is endless? Forget all bitter worries. Just welcome this little madness. And I, I really like that because you can't really tell whether it's some sort of a seducement uh, between a man and a woman or, or a significant other, or is she actually talking about a bottle of wine? My next story is from Harry Hogg. It's called Doggone Story. And he's they've got a note here, beware, this is too. I felt sorry for Keith Pritchard. After all, it can't be any fun having a leg amputated, unable to ride his off-road superbike. It's a long story, one I won't bore you with. In short, a dog bit him, and the wound became infected with gangrene. The dog probably would have reconsidered biting Keith had he known the consequences. 
The dog, a cross between a mastiff and a dachshund, and fondly named Bonkers by his owner, J.K. Growling, the manager of the High Street Body Shop, had to be executed after the biting incident. He was laid to rest in Barking, Essex, on the outskirts of London. Keith had been a keep-fit maniac, proud of his physique, and at great cost had his leg buried at the cemetery where they would wait for the rest of him. I had many a conversation with Keith, trying to get him out of his depression. He wanted to know how his leg was doing in heaven. I admit he's had a drink or two, but such questions did cause me to wonder what God would do with a leg waiting for the rest of him. Think me weird, but I always have these kinds of thoughts. My other thought was to wonder how Keith was going to continue climbing the corporate ladder, and lastly was Bongers waiting for the other leg. Naturally, Keith went to see a lawyer and agreed to let Ted Hooch, a junior partner in Rough Rough and Rough Associates, take his case. Ted told Keith that the owner of the body shop had filed a countersuit blaming Keith for riling her dog, but assured him that the suit had no legs. Keith asked if J.K. Growling's suit was revenge for Bonker's execution, but Ted assured him that she didn't have a legal foot to stand on. Half a million pounds was what Ted told Keith his leg was worth. Keith asked if Bonkers had been executed. With a half a million pounds, he wouldn't need to climb the corporate ladder. He was there and a hop and a skip. Sadly, before the case could be heard, Keith got news that not all the gangrene had been caught and it had spread. At the hospital, he was rushed to the operating room for surgery, but it was in vain. The church was crowded. Keith was a good sort, and I had not a doubt in my mind that he would be reunited with his leg. On the morning of his burial, held next to his leg in Barking Cemetery, Keith received a letter informing him that his prosthetic leg was ready for fitting. That's that's kind of a funny story, um, and I, I I like the references uh, to all the canine stuff. Uh, I, that's one of the reasons why I picked it out. Next, I have a scary story for you. It's published in the Horror Haven, uh, an online publication. It's called The Macabre Masquerade. In the opulent city of Ravenswood, a grand and mysterious event was held each year, known as the Macabre Masquerade. The masquerade was hosted by the enigmatic Countess Isabella, a woman of wealth and allure, whose origins were veiled in secrecy. The invitation-only event was the talk of the town, with rumors circulating about its eerie nature and the strange guests that attended. Emily, a young woman from a modest background, had always dreamed of attending the prestigious masquerade. When she received an invitation, she was overjoyed, seeing it as a chance to escape the ordinary and enter a world of luxury and mystery. As the night of the masquerade approached, Emily found herself feeling both excited and uneasy. The grand venue, the macabre mansion, stood tall and imposing on the outskirts of the city. Its gothic architecture and forbidding facade gave it an air of otherworldly enchantment. With her mask in hand and a sense of trepidation in her heart, Emily entered the mansion, where she was met by the captivating Countess Isabella. The Countess, draped in a flowing gown of midnight blue, welcomed Emily with a mysterious smile. The ballroom was adorned with flickering candles, casting eerie shadows on the walls. The guests wore ornate masks that concealed their identities, adding to the sense of intrigue and mystique that enveloped the gathering. Emily was swept away by the enchanting atmosphere, 
her senses overwhelmed by the haunting beauty of the masquerade. As the night progressed, Emily noticed peculiar occurrences. Guests whispered of forbidden rituals and secret societies, each story more chilling than the last. Some claimed to have encountered apparitions wandering the mansion's halls, while others spoke of macabre ceremonies conducted by the countess herself. Emily's heart quickened with each tale she heard, unsure whether to believe the fantastical stories or attribute them to the fevered imagination of the masquerade's attendees. As the evening wore on, she found herself drawn to a masked stranger who seemed to share her feelings of unease. His mask concealed his face entirely, leaving only his piercing eyes visible. He introduced himself as Adrian, and his presence provided some comfort amid the eerie ambiance of the masquerade. With each dance they shared, Emily sensed a connection with Adrian that transcended the confines of the masquerade. They wandered through dimly lit corridors, exploring a mansion's secrets together. But as Emily delved deeper into the mansion's dark history, she couldn't shake the feeling that something sinister lay hidden within its luxurious exterior. In one room, they stumbled upon a collection of old paintings, depicting scenes of horror and despair. Adrian revealed that the mansion had once been the site of a series of gruesome murders, and the restless spirits of the victims were said to haunt the grounds. As the night drew to close, the macabre nature of the masquerade intensified. The guests engaged in an unsettling dance, moving in an eerie harmony to a haunting melody that seemed to emanate from the very walls. The countess herself led the procession, her mask concealing a sinister smile. Feeling increasingly disorientated, Emily began to question the true nature of the masquerade. Were the tales she had heard merely part of an elaborate performance, or was there something more sinister at play? As the clock struck midnight, the atmosphere in the ballroom shifted dramatically. The flickering candles cast grotesque shadows, and the guest's laughter took on a manic tone. Emily felt a surge of fear, realizing that the masquerade had taken a chilling turn. As she searched for Adrian in a sea of masked faces, she caught sight of the Countess, her eyes locking with Emily's through the shadows of her mask. In that moment, Emily sensed a malevolent aura surrounding the Countess, as if she were the orchestrator of a macabre symphony. In a whirl of panic, Emily tried to flee the mansion, but the once grand ballroom seemed to morph into a nightmarish labyrinth. The walls closed in around her, and the grotesque mass of the other guests seemed to leer at her with malevolence. Amid the chaos, Emily finally found Adrian, who had been searching for her as well. With terror in their eyes, they realized the true nature of the masquerade, the countess' dark ritual to summon a malevolent identity from the depths of the underworld. As the clock struck one, the masquerade reached its ominous crescendo. The ballroom descended into darkness, and a cacophony of wails and unearthly whispers filled the air. Emily and Adrian clung to each other, desperate to escape the horror that surrounded them. Summoning every ounce of courage, they fought their way through the shadows, their hearts pounding in their chests. As they reached the mansion's entrance, a chilling laughter echoed through the halls, the malevolent entity unleashed. With the first rays of dawn, the macabre mansion vanished, leaving behind only memories or whispers of the chilly masquerade. Emily and Adrian emerged from the woods, forever changed by their nightmarish ordeal. The macabre masquerade became a haunting legend, a chilling reminder that the line between fantasy and horror is often blurred. The enchanting allure of the mysterious event concealed a sinister truth, one that Emily and Adrian would never forget, forever haunted by the echoes of the masquerade and the malevolent entity that lurked within its macabre depths. And that was 
pretty scary story. Uh, makes you kind of wonder. Be careful of party invitation, I guess, in the in in the future. My next story is another scary story, but this is a an LGBTQ scary story by Elizabeth Andre, published in Prism and Pen, called Red is Life. Flash horror fiction, queer lives saved by sentient matzah. Our ancestors are with us. They are on our side, and they will provide what we need. Valerie heard pounding on the door, but she had dough to knead. It had to rise. This bread would save them all. Truth, she said, as the dough soaked up her words, life. Her wife pushed the sofa in front of the door. I need your help, she yelled. Valerie focused on the dough, turning it into loaves. Life, life, life. One law after another had been passed. First they threatened their son, who was sent home with his head shorn. Then they threatened their daughter. They took away her skirt. She cried when they made her wear pants, and people wouldn't call her by her name. That name is dead, she screamed. You'll be dead if you don't use your real name, yelled the police officer who had shown up at their door. Valerie couldn't remember pushing him out of their house, but she remembered pulling out the tub of flour. She remembered the promise of her ancestors and a golem who would protect them all. She remembered the sending out the alert and sharing a recipe that had been buried so deep she couldn't remember it until she needed it. Rise, she whispered to the doe. She watched it expand and writhe. She backed away from the counter. Police burst through the door. Valerie stepped aside. The bread had not fully risen. Her wife grabbed their children and ran to the basement. Valerie had to stand her ground. The bread wasn't ready, but she had to be. Life, 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 she repeated over and over. The police officer was a foot away from her when his feet stopped moving forward, when white specks appeared in his blue eyes. The dough continued to grow. The officer's feet disappeared first, and the officer swung his baton until his arm could move no more. He opened his mouth, but no sound came out. The dough had wrapped around his throat and was squeezing. The baton dropped to the kitchen floor with a clatter. It was the bread of life, the bread of affliction, and it was answering their cries for help. It would help them and many other families who follow the recipe that she had sent out to everyone who would ask. Valerie told them all to make bread and let it soak up their words. Life, life, life. And this is a pretty good story. It goes back to the Jewish fable of golems that they could create um, out of mud and little magic uh, and protect them with. In this case, she made it out of bread dough. Now, my next story, and this in, is a little bit scary. Um, so it's called Equilibrium by Pam Saraga, published in Rainbow Salad, A Tale of Times to Come. Dolly Kumakuk stood on the shores of Big Bear Lake. She hadn't been back for a long time. It was the high season in the little village, and the local diner was filled with overdressed tourists trying to take pictures of anything into it. She felt like a rare species who had to be photographed to prove its existence. She had only returned to Emanak village to help her grandmother. She was the last of her family and lived a traditional tribal life hunting, fishing, and moving from camp to camp during the warm season. But now her grandmother, Mia, was alone with only a granddaughter for family and the cursed warm weather disrupting the hunting season. Dolly turned toward her grandmother's house. Do you hear them, child? The old woman asked, even before she had closed the door. Hear, the, hear what, Grandma? 
Dolly suspected that the sound was only in her grandmother's head. Don't look at me that way, child. This is not my imagination. It's the damn heat. She lifted an overturned glass and revealed a green-winged grasshopper. It buzzed and chattered loudly as it took off. There is no way a cicada could make it this far north. Listen, granddaughter, didn't that fancy university teach you to trust your own eyes and ears? At that moment, Dolly heard the buzz and squeak of thousands of insects swarming right out to the windows of their cabin. How did she miss them? You didn't need a B.S. degree in art and ecology to realize something was seriously wrong. The little village had seemed unusual ever since she had arrived. She slept raggedly that night, waking for no reason and plunging back into a restless sleep. It was too quiet when she woke. She looked out the window and saw thousands of dead insects being eaten by the town's stray dogs. She checked her grandmother and found her alert sitting straight up in bed. Dolly, we must leave. This is just not right. It feels strange. The first shocks hit with a dull thud. At first she thought it was an earthquake, but no, there was no side ground movement. It felt as if a great fist were punching the ground, trying to sink the land. Dolly grabbed the binoculars and looked out over the tundra. The permafrost layers were sinking. She could see great clouds of mosquitoes roiling up from the ground. Then suddenly the insects began to drop out of the air. Grandma, you're right. We have to leave. Grab only what you can live without. She rushed to her old jeep and threw in the blankets she could carry. The air was becoming difficult to breathe, and Mia had to be helped into the car. The thumping radiated out of the town, sinking the hills and racing toward the mountains. Dolly's thoughts raced. She knew that the melting of the permafrost layers would release the trapped methane, making it leach from the ground, but she had never observed this speed and intensity. It cascaded like a chain of dominoes, each link increasing the production of the flammable gas. In the distance, the people from the diner began running out. They saw the destruction of the land, but they didn't understand the consequences. The door was carelessly flung open. The atmosphere was thickening as the wave of methane inched toward the diner. It was only a matter of time before it reached the hot grill. Dolly realized what was happening. We will head north where the ice will protect us and the ground is rockier. They felt the first explosion blow up the small diner and then continued down the depressions of sunken land. It kept going, boom, boom, until the air heated up and continued the inferno down the line. She had seen a chain reaction in the lab, but that was a controlled environment. In the real world, the fire would burn until it reached equilibrium or until there was no more melting permafrost to generate methane. The entire Arctic region sat on a layer of permafrost from Newfoundland to Alaska. If the entire region went up in flames, global temperatures would skyrocket. The chain reaction would melt the poles in a few months, not years. At least that would put out the fires. Dolly drove fast toward the north where the tundra gave way to a rocky shoreline. She had forgotten about her passenger and all the excitement. Are you all right, Grandma? She pulled a blanket over the lady's lap. A strong grip cupped her hand. The old woman smiled and said, I will teach you the old ways, granddaughter. Our people will survive. We know how to live with Mother Earth. And that's a very, very good story. And be honest with you, it's another one that actually could come true someday. Um, given things the way they are, this is a very, very real possibility. And it's true. The Inuit, they'll go north and they'll survive just fine. My last one is a poem. And the the author, Emily is typing. Dear Hong Kong, this poem is for you. And this is an ode to her 
hometown of Hong Kong. This poem is a dedication to my original hometown of Hong Kong. Comment below if you too have been to Hong Kong. Include your most memorable moment, which I did. I went there in the 70s two or three times. In the heart of the East, where cultures blend, I journeyed to Hong Kong, where dreams don't end. A bustling city, day and night so alive, where old and new meet a place to thrive. Skyscrapers touching the sky's high edge show ambition like a solemn pledge. Bright neon streets with stories to be told and Hong Kong's warm embrace, the tales unfold. Kowloon's markets, so vibrant and grand, with treasures from all across the land. Antiques and trinkets, shining so bright, street food aromas fill the night. Dim sum delights a tasty sensation, from dumplings to sweet confections creation. In Hong Kong's flavors, there's much to explore. Each bite an adventure you can't ignore. Aberdeen's waters, champans gently sway, Tradition meets the modern day. A Wong Tai Sin's shrine, a peaceful scene. Inner peace found in fragrant incense sheen. Victoria Peak, tall and proud it stands. Views of the city and sea expand. Hong Kong's skyline, a dazzling display. Progress mixed with history in every way. Through streets whispering of the past embrace, from British colonial times, memories trace. In love with Hong Kong, spirit so bright, a city that dances from morning till night. Warm culture and people, a welcoming warm, a deep connection amidst the daily swarm. In Hong Kong's embrace, I found my way, a piece of my heart there I wish to stay. To the city that stole my heart with grace, street food and skyscrapers in its embrace, Hong Kong in my memories book you'll look, a love story and adventure in every cranny and nook. From Temple Street charm, to the Starry Fairy's grace, every Hong Kong moment puts a smile on my face. In the heart of the East, where dreams ignite, I left a piece of my soul in your radiant light. Love, Emily. And that's my last story and poem for this week. And I hope you enjoyed everything. As I said, I always try to offer you a variety of things. Sometimes they're scary. Sometimes, like this last one, there's uh, an ode to something, um, you know, and a memory of good things. And like I said, I've been to Hong Kong back in the 70s, and it, it's pretty much just like what she described. So, as I said, don't forget to read the newsletter that's going to come with this, and you got multiple ways to get a hold of it. Um, you can read it, um, and you can also read the stories uh, as I've read them to you. At this point, I'm going to leave you and give you my parting song for the week. It's called The Unicorn by the Irish Rovers. Until next time, slantia. Long time ago when the earth was green and There was more kinds of animals than you'd ever seen They'd run around free while the earth was being born But the loveliest of them all was the unicorn There was green alligators and long necked geese Some humpty back camels and some chimpanzees Some cats and rats and elephants but sure as you're born the loveliest of all was the unicorn Now God seen some sinning and it gave him pain And he says, stand back, I'm going to make it rain He says, hey brother Noah, I'll tell you what to do 
build me a floating zoo And take some of them green, green alligators and long neck geese Some humpty back camels and some chimpanzees Some cats and rats and, and elephants, elephants but sure as you're born Don't you forget my unicorn Old Noel was there to answer the call He finished up making the ark just as the rain started falling He marched in the animals two by two And he called out as they went through Hey Lord, I got you green alligators and long neck geese Some humpty back camels and some chimpanzees Some cats and rats and elephants But Lord, I'm so forlorn I just can't see no unicorn Then Noah looked out Through the driving rain Them unicorns were hiding Playing silly games Kicking and splashing While the rain was pouring Oh, them silly unicorns Green alligators and long neck geese Some humpty back camels and some chimpanzees Noah cried, close the door, cause the rain is pouring And we just can't wait for no unicorn The ark started moving, it drifted with the tide Them unicorns looked up from the rocks and they cried and the waters came down and sort of floated them away. And that's why you never seen a unicorn to this very day. You'll see green, green alligators and long neck geese, some humpty back camels and some chimpanzees, some cats and rats and elephants, but sure as you're born, you're never gonna see no I'd like to thank you for listening to the show today. I hope you enjoyed it, and you'll return again for another episode of Crown Beehive Stories and Poetry next week. Share this podcast with your friends and relations. The more, the merrier. Search for Crown Beehive Stories and Poetry in your favorite podcast app. I hope I've achieved my goal in helping you feel like we've been sitting under the village oak tree as I try to entertain you today. As a Shauna Key, I want to continue to delight you with a story or a poem that may bring you a smile or make you think a little bit after we part for the day. As I say goodbye this week, I wish to leave you with this Irish blessing as you go about your day. May your blessings outnumber the shamrocks that grow, and may trouble avoid you wherever you go. Slongo foil, which means goodbye for now in Irish.